Mark chapter 7, verses 14 through 23. Mark chapter 7, 14 through 23. Let's read this. After he called the crowd to him again, he began saying to them, Listen to me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside the man which can defile him if it goes into him. But the things which proceed out of the man are what defile the man. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Verse 17, he, when he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples questioned him about the parable. And he said to them, are you so lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from outside cannot defile him because it does not go into his heart, but into his stomach and is eliminated and literally goes out into the latrine. Thus he declared all foods clean. And he was saying, that which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles the man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. So if you remember three weeks ago now, when we first started this, this, whole, this whole section, I mentioned that this was going to take three weeks to go through. And um, these 23 verses are actually the longest conflict. This is the longest conflict speech in the whole gospel of Mark. And if you remember, this is, that's an important statement in itself because in those days, paper, in fact, in these days, paper is, is, a, a, is a hot commodity. It's a precious commodity. In fact, there's a bookseller, um, a very prominent bookseller in, in Michigan, and, uh, and they told me that they're having problems publishing books right now because there's not enough paper to publish books. And you're like, what is this about? So they have to be very selective about what they receive and what they don't receive, right? Mark is in the same situation. When he writes the gospel of Mark, he has to be very selective. It's not like he has all the paper in the world. So he is very selective, and yet he decides to devote 23 verses to this, this whole topic of purity and what defiles a man. And that's, that's what Christ is going to, to really get to the heart to today. What defiles a man? What is it that defiles a person? What is it that makes a person unclean? Now, you remember Christ in general, his, 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 uh, his biography up to this point, he never shies away from situations that in the, in, the, in the culture's eyes would make him unclean. He doesn't shy away from that. Remember, he touches a leper. He touches a corpse. Some lady with the flow of blood for 12 years, she comes up and touches him. He doesn't, he doesn't shrink back. He doesn't get upset. He takes his, not only does he go into a graveyard, and heal the demoniac, but he takes his disciples with him into this graveyard, heals the demoniac. So Christ is not, he's not afraid of being unclean in the eyes of the culture. The problem though is, is that in the eyes of the culture, in the eyes of the Jews at that time, Christ is, he's, he's being a renegade. He's being, he's being, uh, he's not being cautious, but it's more than that. When you're talking about, let's look at verse 14 and, 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 and you'll see what I'm saying. When you're talking about what holiness is and what it is to defile a person, it's not just a matter of, hey, you know, if, if, if you sin or if you're unholy, then, 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 you know, you're not, God doesn't look with favor on you. The problem here is Nadab and Abihu. Remember Nadab and Abihu in Leviticus? Nadab and Abihu offer strange fire to the Lord. Leviticus 11 through 15, they offer strange fire. And when they offer strange fire, what happens? God comes in and destroys them on the spot. That's the problem. So when Christ is over here in the eyes of the culture being flippant with these, with these holiness codes and these dietary laws, well, in their minds, they're saying, well, he clearly cannot be the Christ. He clearly cannot be a person sent from God because he has no regard for holiness. He has no regard for cleanliness. 
But Christ here, what he's going to do is what we've already seen him do. What he's going to do is he's going to point out that you guys have misinterpreted what it is to be holy. You've misunderstood what the holiness codes and the dietary laws are are put there in the first place. You've, you've, You've totally missed that. And so that's why in verse 14, look what he says. After he called the crowd to him again. So he's done this before. He's called the crowd to him again. And then he teaches them, of course. He began saying to them, listen to me, all of you, and understand. That's, that's, that's kind of like um, the, the whole idea of, of behold. You know, sometimes Christ will say behold. Or, or, or listen. Or hear. That's what he's doing here. He calls them again to him. And he says, listen to me. And then, it, then he says, all of you understand. In other words, get this, don't miss this. This is revelatory significance. This is a prophetic call. Christ is going to tell them something of of significance here. He says in verse 15, nothing outside the man can defile him. You You can't be defiled by anything outside of you. Now this flies in the face of everything that that culture believes. And not only the culture, we're talking the disciples. The disciples have never heard anything like this in their life. Because the disciples, just like everybody else in that culture, they're being inundated. They're saturated, indoctrinated with this idea that salvation has to happen in some part from, from, from you doing something outside of yourself. If you're to be defiled, it's from outside. And I'll give you an example. So there were many ways in these in Leviticus 11, um, 11 through 15. There's many ways, many, many ways to become unclean. Many ways. What are some ways that you can become unclean? Skin disease. If you have a skin disease, you're unclean. If you give birth to a child, you're unclean. If you eat the wrong food, you're unclean. If you touch a leper, you're unclean. If you touch a dead body, you're unclean. If you have any kind of bodily discharge whatsoever, you're unclean. If you go into your house and there's a bug of a certain type of bug in one, in, let's say a pot in your house, that pot is unclean. If you have a certain thing growing in the walls of your house, your house is unclean. So there's many ways to become unclean. And that's the point. That is the point. See, when Christ is looking at these laws, when God gives these laws, there's three purposes for the laws in Leviticus 11 through 15. There's three purposes, three primary purposes. Number one, it's to demonstrate that there is a difference between being unclean and clean. There is a difference. That's important. But the difference is this, okay? And it is true that if you're unclean, you are threatened with death and you are threatened with the departure of God. That's a very significant thing. That God's departure will leave from you. So when they see Christ doing these things, in their minds, they're not saying, oh, Christ is not right with God. They're saying, Christ, you are threatening to bring judgment upon the entire nation of Israel because you are disregarding Leviticus 11 through 15 and the dietary laws there. There's ramifications that go beyond just uh, us as individuals. And that's the same thing today. You know, when people say, well, you know, what's the big deal about homosexuals? And I mean, it's not like it hurts you, right? You hear that a lot. It's not like that hurts you. It doesn't bother you. What well, does bother you? If you live in the same nation where that's being openly practiced, then what do you have? You have God's judgment. God gives nations over to these to nations that practice these things. He gives them over to their, to their own destruction. So the fact that you're in a, in the nation that practices that, yeah, it affects all of us. That's in a sense how they're looking at Christ. Christ, they're saying, Christ, you, I mean, clearly you don't care about Israel. You don't care about us. You don't care about yourself. You don't care about your disciples. You certainly don't care about God. But Christ is over here saying, listen, guys, you have completely, completely misunderstood what these Levitical codes are all about. What are they about then? What are they about? Number, uh, number two, that's the first thing. Number two, the purpose of them, here it is, to show that to enter God's presence, you have to be pure, holy, and clean. That is the point. So in that sense, they are right. To enter 
into God's presence. You have to be holy. You have to be pure. You have to be clean. You have to be spotless because God himself is holy. God himself is righteous. God himself is just. And it's also to separate the nation of Israel from the other nations. To mark them out. They're different. They're distinct from all the other nations. But here's the thing. Mainly, significantly, the most significant purpose of the Levitical codes and the dietary laws, the holiness codes, all that stuff, the most significant purpose is to be a picture of something. What is it to picture? You know what it's to picture? It's to picture the totality of life as unclean. That's what it's meant to be. It's like this. When you, when you look at your life and you realize, I cannot go through a single day of my life without doing something that makes me unclean. That's the point of, the, of, these, of these laws, of, these, of these, these, uh, these rituals. That's the point. To look at my life in general. I can't do it. It's to overwhelm a person into realizing that we are, that they are unclean, that they are sinners, that there's, it's impossible Think about it. Same thing with the sacrifices. You know, you take the sacrifices. Think about being a priest in those days. What would your life be like if you were a priest under the old covenant? What would that be like? All day long, you're taking animals, you're slaughtering animals, you're taking guts and blood and all of that. You're sprinkling blood over here. You're taking other guts over here and you're eating this over here. You're, you're, you're covered in blood all day long. Why is that? What is that meant to picture? Right, so here it's the same, it's the same concept. I cannot go through a single day of my life without knowing that I have to bring something to the priest because I've sinned again. Over and over and over and over and over again. That's my life. My life is a life of, of sin, a life of, of, of uncleanness, a life of defilement. And you realize what the Pharisees and the scribes have done with all this, right? They look at it like this. Okay, I know that life is, there's a lot of ways to be unclean. But we're going to find a way around it. We're going to figure out a way where we can, we can do all these things and somehow eventually be clean. Somehow eventually not need anything else. What Christ is doing here is Christ is saying, this is why Christ says this. Look what he said. He says, nothing outside the man can defile him. If it goes in him. But the things which proceed out of the man, that's what defiles him. Now, check out the disciples here in verse 17. When he had left the crowd and enters the house, and you see that a lot. So the disciples are privy to some kind of special access. They go into the house. The disciples question him about the parable. They say, Christ, what, what was that about? Now, it's interesting here. Why are they? It's, we say this is like, come on, guys. How come you can't get this? But again, this is all they've been taught. Everybody forever. Especially since they've all gone into exile. That's when the Pharisees start up, when the, when, the, when the people of God are taken into exile. And then whenever they're taken into exile, what do you have in the temple? Well, Babylon comes in, destroys the temple, destroys the whole area. So when they go into exile, they're like, well, how do we worship God? We don't have a temple. We can't go to Jerusalem, the place that God told us to go. And so what we have to do is we have to go to the Torah. That's good. That's where you should go, right? The scriptures. But then when they're over there, they start coming up with these, these, these weird techniques and rituals. That's where you get the oral laws. That's where you get the Mishnah and the Talmud and all this other stuff. And so when they come back to Jerusalem, they have these stacks of books now that tell you how to interpret Levitic, uh, Leviticus 11 through 15. And the problem is, is with that, is so, so the disciples, that's all they've heard as well. So the disciples, they go into this, this, this house and they're questioning him about the parable. In verse 18, Christ says to them, are you so lacking in understanding also? You mean you don't get it either? 
Do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from outside cannot defile him? You can't be defiled by anything that's outside of you. You can't be defiled by by a skin disease. You can't be defiled by 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 a bug that you that you happen to stumble upon in your pot, and so you have to throw the pot out and the bug and everything else, wash it off. You can't be defiled by these things. And they're like, "What are you talking about? You can't be defiled by these things." What's the point of the Levitical code then? The holiness law, all these things. What's the point of all of that? And so Christ here, what's he, what is he going to do? Here's the other thing to remember about these, these, um, these, these dietary laws. And this is very important. In Lubbock, we had a guy who was coming regularly. He's a nice guy, great guy. I love him a lot. But then he starts getting into what's called this Jewish roots school have y'all heard that i know eric has and y'all have right this jewish roots this this thing where where you start looking at the dietary laws and you say well wait a minute what's going on we need to we need to have this special diet seventh day adventists a lot of that in there too right so here's the thing to remember the most one of the most important factors when it comes to dietary laws you're like okay well so so we're not called to like have this special diet so so food is clean now well christ himself says this in verse 19, this is why whatever is outside can't defile you because it does not go into the heart, verse 19, but into a stomach and is eliminated into the latrine. That's why he's saying foods cannot make you unclean. Foods can't make you unclean. And when it says, thus he declared all foods clean, you have to think about this, okay? Turn with me to Genesis chapter 9. This right here puts to death anybody who claims that you have to hold to the dietary laws today. This will explode it all right here. Chapter 9 says this right here. Chapter 9, verse 3 of Genesis. Every moving thing that is alive, look at this. Every living thing, every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. You notice what it is, right? Every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. Everything. I give all to you. As I gave the green plants. So you know what that tells us? There's no such thing as an unclean food. When, when, when Noah comes off the ark, God says, it's all yours, man. You can eat whatever you want. However, the only, the only restriction here is only you shall not eat flesh with this life that is this blood. So strangle out the blood. You can eat whatever you want. You can eat pork. You can eat, you can eat catfish. All the things that Leviticus tells the Israelites, you can't eat catfish. You can't eat eagles. You can't eat pork. Well, God over here is saying, hey, those nothing wrong with eating pork here. So what happens? Is it is it God changing his mind? Is it, you know, what's going on here? The same thing happens in um, uh, with Moses. Think about Moses. Okay, so Moses receives the Levitical, the dietary laws. Where does he receive those laws? On Sinai. Well, what happens before Sinai? Moses lives 80 years. Moses lives in a in a nation of, of heathens in Egypt. And don't you know, his diet was very unclean. He's eating whatever comes to his plate. There's no such thing as unclean food. So they're eating, they're eating, they're eating, right? And it's not until God gives these laws, these dietary laws, that now, okay, there is a separation between clean and unclean foods. There's a separation between clean and unclean behaviors. There's a separation between this and that. Why? Again, to show that God's people are different from the nations. And the main thing is to demonstrate that you cannot keep the law, just like the law, right? The main thing is to demonstrate that you are unclean in the totality of your life. That's the point. That's the purpose of the law. Now, here's the other thing. If you go back to New Testament, 
Mark 7, Jesus declares all foods clean. Notice the way that's phrased, though. It's not like Christ is quoted here in chapter 7, verse 19. Christ is not quoted as saying all foods are clean. Mark interprets Christ as saying all foods are clean. How does Mark interpret that? Well, where is Mark getting his information for the gospel of Mark? From Peter. Remember we've talked about this? Mark is Peter's right-hand man. Well, what happens to Peter? Turn with me to Acts chapter 10. Because Peter, even after this is going on, even after this discussion between Christ and the Pharisees, and even after Christ takes these disciples into the home and says, Listen, guys, what is outside, what you eat is not going to defile you. Even after all of that, you have Peter, Acts chapter 10, verse 9. Look at this. On the next day, as they were on their way and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray, but he became hungry. And was desiring to eat. So this is about food. But while they were making preparations, he fell into a trance and he saw the sky opened up and an object like a great sheet coming down, lowered by four corners to the ground. And there were in it all kinds of four-footed animals and crawling creatures of the earth and birds of the air. Those are unclean foods. And if you, if you weren't sure whether or not those were unclean foods, a voice came to him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Not just kill it, not just sacrifice it. Eat it, Peter. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unholy and unclean. He knows that on this sheet there are unholy and unclean animals. But what does God tell him? Again, a, a voice came to him a second time to repeat it. Peter, you didn't get it the first time. Let me say it again. What God has cleansed, no longer consider unholy. What God has cleansed, no longer consider unholy. So what is the purpose of all of these these dietary laws. The main purpose of the clean and unclean laws is to teach Israel to abstain from the dirtiness of sin. That uncleanness came into the world because of sin. Such, un- such cleanness of heart became a divine promise and an object of hope for Israel. Remember this. Remember Ezekiel 36. I will sprinkle clean water upon you and you shall be clean. From all of your uncleanness and from all your idols, I will cleanse you. The point of all of these things, because when you became unclean, what did you have to do? You had to wash. You had to be cleansed. You had to be sprinkled. You had to, all, these, all these washings and rituals, right? But what was that pointing to? What, was this, what were the sacrifices pointing to? What was the blood and the guts and all that? What were those pointing to? Christ. It's all pointing to Christ. The idea of clean and unclean and all these things. I'm Okay, the totality of my life is unclean. What do I do about it? Look to Christ. Christ is trying to explain this to him. That's exactly, that's all Christ is trying to do here in verse 19. It does not, uh, Mark chapter 7, verse 19, he says, it does not go into his heart. Food does not go into your heart, guys. Now here's the thing about the heart. Okay, think about this. What is, what is the seat of action, the seat of, of the person? William says the will. That's true. But notice a lot of times we think, well, it's the mind, it's the intellect, it's the thoughts. And that's part of it, right? But here's the thing. You can have the right thoughts, you can have the right convictions mentally, intellectually. You can know truth intellectually and still not go after truth. Still not follow truth. Remember uh, church history class, we are just talking about Augustine. Augustine is a classic example of a guy who before he's converted, he's looking around at all his friends and they're, they're, they're doing the right thing. They're going after Christ and he's looking at his own. He has a intellectual awareness that Christianity is true. That this is the right thing. To, this is the truth. This is what I've always been looking for. But there's something in me that can't go after it. That's why it's the heart or the will that is the seat of the person. It's not the intellect. 
It's the heart. And so what Christ is doing is he's saying that the heart, food can't contaminate or, or affect the heart. Doesn't have any effect on that. Doesn't have any influence on that. What we need here is something else. Think And think what he says here in verse 20. He says, that which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles the man. That which proceeds out of the man. The Pharisees say what? That which goes into a man, that is what defiles the man. That which, is, that which goes into him. Christ says, no, it's the other way. He, he changes the direction. He reverses the direction of it. He says, the, in, the inner impurities defile the external. The evil in the world... You know, how often do we look at the world? In fact, I mean, that's, that's what he says in verse 21 and verse 22 when you have this list. You know, we have this list over here in verse 21 where he's talking about for from within. You have all of these corruptions and all of these, these evils and, and this, this, these monstrosities, these perversions. And we look at the world and we're like, man, why is there all this evil in the world? Why is there murder and mayhem and crime and adultery and all these things, right? Why is that? And what's very fascinating is... Some of the answers that you hear today are the same answers that the Pharisees and the scribes would give. Something like this. Okay, so the rabbis, they're saying this. They're saying it's your society, it's your culture that defiles you. That's what contaminates you. And if you ever hear a Marxist, what, a Mar- what does Marxism teach? Socialism? What does that teach? I've taken a lot of Marxist classes. They're very fascinating, very intriguing. But I remember I was a very young Christian, and I remember I was one of the classes where, where they're talking about Marx. And, and when you read Marx, it's interesting because you're like, well, okay, the guy, the guy does seem to have um, a sincere desire to think that, that it's, uh, it's, it's better for everyone if we all have the same social conditions. That that would bring about this change in society and that that would, that would eliminate murder and, and robbery and, and all the crimes and all the evils in a person's heart. If we can just control the social factors or the social environment, if we can get everybody on the same page, then you're not going to have any envy, right? Because we all have the same stuff. And I remember even as a very young Christian reading that and, and you're like, man, this guy is a brilliant idiot because he has no idea about the heart of man. He has underestimated the perversion of man, the depravity of man. And this is the man who's himself, when you study the life of Marx, this man himself was a monster. And yet he can't evaluate himself enough or at least accurately enough to realize that it's not from outside of me that makes me evil. It's from from within. That's where the defilement is. So it's not a matter of of cleaning up society or making everybody have the same stuff. And if you get everybody in the right economic or whatever it is, uh, science and technology, sometimes you'll hear the same thing. You know, technology can save us. This idea that that, that some people are, um, you you hear about these people that, that, that will, they're, they're in the process right now of creating some kind of technology that will help us live forever. By 2040, we're going to have this technology. We're going to live forever. And they're looking for these answers. Everywhere except for the place where the answer lies. They're looking for explanations. Why is there evil? Why is there defilement? And everybody's pointing fingers at everybody else. It's because my dad was evil. It's because so-and-so. It's because of Hitler. It's because of this guy. It's because of that guy. Nobody's saying it's because of me. Isn't that the problem? Nobody points and says, hey, maybe it's my fault that there's evil in the world. If you if you, everybody's watching Jeffrey Dahmer these days, the, the Netflix documentary, I guess there's there's a big Jeffrey Dahmer thing. When you go to the when you go out and talk to people, there the big question that I hear a lot is, 
do you think Jeffrey Dahmer's really in heaven? Right? And you're like, wait a minute. All right. <laughs> Did God have mercy on a soul? And if so, yeah, he's in heaven. And when you say that, what, what, what's the first thing that people say? Well, if he's in heaven, I don't want to go there. How can he go to heaven? That's evil. How can this wicked, evil destruction of human life, how can he go to heaven? I don't want to go there if he's there. And you know what they never do, though? They never look at themselves and say, wait a minute. Maybe my heart is just as evil as Jeffrey Dahmer's heart, but in God's providence, he's restrained me to do what Jeffrey Dahmer did. Isn't that, that's always the problem, right? And that just shows, like in Jeremiah 17, 9, where it says the heart is deceitful above all else. It's desperately wicked, desperately sick. Deceitful above everything else. Jeremiah 17, 9 says there's nothing more deceitful than the human heart. And you see it every single time, not just when you talk to unbelievers, but when you examine your own self, right? How quick are we to look for loopholes to justify our own sin, even as believers, And so Christ is saying, you guys are looking for outside things that defile you. You don't have to look outside yourself. Look inside yourself. That's where the defilement comes from. That's why he gives you this list in 21. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness. That's a list of evil actions. The second part of the list are evil attributes. Deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. This is not an exhaustive list, by the way. In fact, you have uh, five different places in the New Testament alone where you have a list like this. I, I read one last week, but you have one in, in 1 Corinthians 5, you have one in Romans 1, you have one in 1 Timothy 1, and you have one in 2 Timothy chapter 3. You have these lists that are just these, 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 these um, comprehensive but not exhaustive lists of the evil of human beings, the depravity of man. And, and when you're looking at it, you know what this is, right? This is, this is called the depravity of man. What is it? What is the depravity of man? What does that mean? Here's some questions. This is a sheet filled with Bible verses. I'm not kidding. Bible verses after Bible verses after Bible verse of the evil of man. Of course, we don't have time to go through all of it, but this sheet right here. So think about these questions that a lot of times in our culture, ask yourself, what does culture usually say about man? Is man basically good or basically evil? Basically good or basically evil? People say, oh, he's basically good. What's the Bible say, right? See, this alone I found that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. It says in Romans 5, sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. By the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. That's original sin. So when Adam falls in the garden, we all are contaminated. We all inherit his sin now. That's why we love evil. That's why it's not hard for us the second we're born. You immediately, you go after evil. You go and you're selfish and all this, right? And then it just becomes more complex the older you get. (laughs) Because that's how we are inwardly. That's how we're born. Ask yourself this. Are people good deep down? Right? Are they good deep down? You know, the answer says this. To the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. That's Titus 1. Ephesians 4. You must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. The heart of the wicked is of little worth. Whoever trusts in his own heart is a fool, Proverbs says. Whoever trusts in his own heart is a fool. 
Christ says, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. Second Peter, they promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person to that, he is enslaved. A lot of times, that's the other question to ask. Are, are we free or are we enslaved? You know, everyone's like, we're free. Everybody has free will. When the Bible doesn't teach that, the Bible teaches that our, our, sin, our, our, our wills are, are in bondage to sin. Titus 3.3, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Galatians 4.8 says, formerly when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's idolatry. Over and over and over and over and over again. It's, it's this idea of slavery to sin, corruption, bondage, evil, destruction in our hearts. And then you look around and you realize, you know, this is, this is quite astonishing. Just like with all these dietary laws, what were the dietary laws meant to do? To overwhelm you into realizing I'm unclean. I'm undone. What was me? What is Christ doing here with this? He's overwhelming them with the depravity that's in their own hearts. You're evil. You're malicious. You're murderous. You're adulterous. And the rich young ruler's like, what are you talking about? I've never done this. I've loved everybody. I've, I've always done this. I've always done that. Christ says, you're not looking in the right place, man. It's not your outward actions. Isn't that what he says? He says, you take this law, but then, and then what? You can say all day long, well, I've never murdered anybody. But when you have hatred in your heart, what is it? It's the same as murder. Why? Because it's, it's the same. The same thing that causes a person to murder is the same expression in a person's heart that, that even though the person has for another person, he might not murder him, but he still has that same anger. Same thing with adultery. Adultery doesn't, doesn't begin in the act. It begins here in the heart. That's why he's saying investigate the inner man, the inner life. And then you'll realize this is a cesspool of corruption and depravity, a sink of, of iniquity. That's what we have. Calvin, when he says that the heart is, an, is, is, a, is a factory for idols. We just keep pumping idols out. We, we put down one idol and then before you know it, we make an idol of something else. And then we got to work, you know, they, in God's grace, we get rid of that. And then and this is as Christians, this is as believers, right? Even as believers, man, we're still wrestling with this stuff. So here's, here's what you have. And this is why this is so important. Because if you deny any of this stuff, you know what? You know what the consequences of that is? If you deny the depravity and the wickedness of man then what you're doing, what will happen consequentially is the gospel becomes less and less precious. When you realize the depravity in my heart is this bad, then you realize the work of grace that it takes to save a sinner like me. That's why when somebody says, Jeffrey Dahmer's going to heaven, then I don't want to go to heaven. And you realize... They have completely, completely missed the gospel, right? Because the gospel is every single heart is worse than Jeffrey Dahmer's, worse than Adolf Hitler. God is restraining us. God is keeping us from doing those things that Jeffrey Dahmer did. He restrains us. But then what do we have? Not that, not that, not that we love God, but that God loved us. It's initiated by, by God. For God so loved the world. Then you realize, oh, wow, he really did love the world. In fact, B.B. Warfield, when it talks about for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, 
That whoever, and he says, it's, it, you know what the, the for God so loved part? He so loved the world. He's talking about the depravity of man. He, 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 so, he loved the world so much that he would do this. What do you mean by so much? The depravity of man so much. He, it's the depravity of man part. God, though we're this evil, though we're this depraved, though we're this murderous, though we're this, this, this barbaric, God so loved us that he did something about it. That's why in verse 23, all these evil things proceed from within. They defile the man. And he's like, guys, you've completely missed it. Right? It's, it's from within. You are walking around as a defiled person if you're not right with Christ. So when they're looking at it like this, here's the question, right? If the Mosaic law can't cleanse the heart, if the Levitical codes in 11 through 15, if they can't cleanse the heart, if good works can't cleanse the heart, if society around us, if everything else getting better and better and better, that's the idea, right? With, with Marxism, socialism, communism, if everything gets better, then we'll all, get, we'll, we'll all become better. If that can't do it, if all these things can't do it, what will then? You see, that's the point of all of this. What, what can make me clean? What can help my defilement? If science can't do it, if technology can't do it, if society can't do it, what can do it then? And the question or the problem with the question is that it's not what can do it, it's who can do it. See, for the Pharisees and the scribes, they were, their mentality was what can do this? How then can we do this? What can we do about our sins? When Christ is saying, no, it's not what, it's who, it's me. You know, when Christ says, come to me, all you who are weak and heavy laden, and all the time he's saying, come to me. He's always calling people to come to him, right? Because when you come to him, what happens? You know what the Bible calls us now? And this is the most miraculous thing. We look at our hearts and we're like, man, there's... Even as Christians, if you investigate your soul for even a millisecond, you realize there is some serious iniquity in my own soul. But what does the Bible call us people? Holy ones. A holy nation. That's what the Bible calls us. We are a holy nation. A holy nation. We're, 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 we've been sprinkled with clean water. And here's the, here's the best part. When Christ is in Gethsemane, and he's looking at the cup, and he says, not my will be done, but your will be done. But he says, Father, let this cup pass from me. Think about this. We look at our hearts and we know what it's like to have hearts that are fornicators and th- thefts and, and murders and all these things in our heart. Anger and, and, and selfishness and pride and all these things. You know who never had any of that in his heart? Christ. When Christ comes to earth, he never had anything like that in his heart. He never had any, any motive of, of pride or selfishness or theft or murder or adultery. Any, any of the things that we have experienced. Christ had none of that. So when he comes to earth... He's never had that, not only on earth, but even before earth. Never in, 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 in a single instant of, of his existence has he ever experienced the darkness and the evil of these sins right here. But why is the cross so horrific? Why is the cross so horrific? It's the, well, it's, it's the nine-inch nails being driven through his wrists and his ankles and the, the, the crown of thorns and the spear at his side, right? And that, all of those things, they're, they're, they are horrific. But what makes, the, what makes the cross horrific? It's the wrath of God being poured upon the Son. It's Christ taking our place in the sacrifice so that he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. That's the horrific part. Think about this, okay? He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. 
All of the filth that's in our heart, all of the wickedness and the darkness and the depravity and the ill will and all of the just the nasty, gross, malicious stuff that is in our hearts right now. When Christ goes to the cross, this Christ who has never in his entire existence experienced the depravity of man, has never even tasted just like a little bit of it. He goes to the cross and all of a sudden all the junk and the filth and the wretchedness of our own hearts, guess, guess who they're transferred to? Christ. He experiences the horror of what it's like to have a wicked heart. See that? That's why we have to appreciate this doctrine that's called the depravity of man. Because if we, if we don't, we don't truly appreciate how much Christ loved us, how much Christ suffered for us. And in understanding this, what happens? We're filled with more love for Christ, more thankfulness for Christ. So even though we have these sins in our life, these things that overwhelm us still, the depravity that still overwhelms us, what do we do? First of all, we have hope in Christ. We say that, hey, today I'm righteous in the eyes of God. I'm a holy one. I'm a saint. We're his people. We're the holy nation. We're a kingdom of priests because of what Christ has done. But also, even in the, in the wrestling of my own sin, I know this. I know that Christ, number one, I have a motivation to live as he lived. I have a motivation to continue putting to death the deeds of the flesh. Christ says, if your right eye causes you to sin, what's he say? Tear it out and throw it away. If your right eye causes you to sin, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. What's he talking about? All the sin that's still in our life as God's people. We're not just to kick back and say, oh, you know, it's, it'll, it'll go away one day. We're to wrestle against this stuff. We're to strive against this stuff. We're to constantly be active and engage in a warfare against every evil that's in our life. And putting it to death and putting it to death. And you're like, yeah, but every time I put it to death, it crops up the next day. Amen. Hit it again. Put it back down again. Why? Because Christ has given us the victory. See, the beauty of this is this, right? We rest in Christ's work. We rest in what he has done for us. And so we can fight confidently and optimistically and with hope. Not in despair, not in discouragement, not saying, oh, now I'm going to hell and now I'm not going to hell. Now I am going to hell. We know that in Christ, we are righteous in the eyes of God. But it's because of what Christ has done. That's what gives us the encouragement and, and the gratitude. To say, hey, man, why would I not wrestle all of my life, no matter how tiring it is, against the sins of my life? Knowing that Christ has already paid for them, knowing that I'll spend eternity with Christ, and knowing, isn't there, I mean, one of the, one of the, one of the best rewards in life is when you deny the flesh. Y'all notice that? When you, when you turn away from a sin. When you have this thing cropped up and you're like, man, it's, 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 your flesh is appealed by it, but then... You say no. That's one of the greatest joys in life. Even the small ones. You know, you're like, man, that's, that's a rush, man. That's, that's victory. But that's the thing. This is a warfare. And Christ has said, listen, the Pharisees and the scribes, they missed it because they were looking for holiness. They were looking for righteousness outside of themselves. And in a sense, by doing something. And Christ is saying, you guys have completely overlooked what this was all about. All the, all the, all the, the cleansings... The rituals. You're unclean, you gotta, you got to be sprinkled. You're unclean, you got to take a bath. 
All of that was to point to the Christ who was to come. And you know what he does? He cleanses us. He cleanses the world. So now this idea of clean and unclean, Christ says, no, there's no, it's all food is clean now because that was a temporary administration to demonstrate that you need someone outside of you to save you, to make you holy, to make you pure, to make you clean, to make you righteous. That's what Christ has done for us. And so as we look at this and you look at what Christ has done for us, this is, this is the reason why we're here, man. This is the reason why we live. This is the reason why you have hope when you go to work and, and, and hope in your life, hope in your and even when you're, you're beaten down by sins, you get up again, right? You get up again. Because it was never about, hey, if you're perform- it's all about your performance. And if you don't perform well, then you're done. It's never about your performance. It's about Christ's performance. And in the meantime, you continue striving to become more and more like Christ. That's true love. You know, when, when we realize what Christ has done for us and then we, as, as a response, we say, I'm going to live a life for Him now. Let's pray. Christ, we are, are humbled this afternoon. We, we, I mean, what can we say, Lord? What can we say? We know that our hearts are truly a... Even with new hearts. Lord, You've given us new hearts. The Bible says that You've taken out our heart of stone. You've given us a heart of flesh. That we now desire You. We have new principle in life. We, we a new motivation. And yet, Lord, we confess that there's so much of this filth that's still in us. And so, Lord, we look to you today. We don't look to the things outside of ourselves, as far as society goes, Lord, but we look to you. We look to the, the God of the universe. And, Lord, we thank you for the, for the ways that you have helped us to overcome sins in our life. Lord, what a glorious thing it is to look back at all the sins that you've helped us to overcome already. Some small and some big, but, Lord, we know that there are still challenges ahead and challenges today. So, Lord, give us the grace to to recognize this depravity in our hearts so that we're alert to that fact, so that we're not overly confident in ourselves, but that we're constantly leaning on You. And Christ, we especially thank You that though You knew no sin, that You were willing to go to the cross to take on sin in our place, to take on our sin and to be crushed for our sin. Lord, we pray that You would impress that truth upon us more and more, that it would become real, that it would become more real, and that we would live a life that reflects it. In Jesus' name, amen.